Waldy and Bendy. Hello, and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, but as no one can say Valdemar Janusztak, you can call me Waldy. And I'm joined in these adventures by a man who's been everything in life an art dealer, an art historian, a man on a motorbike, and now he's on the telly all the time. He is, of course, Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, who I think is up in Scotland. Is, is that right, Bendy? Hello, yes, here I am. I'm, I'm trying many professions in life to master something at last, but we keep going. And you are in Scotland? I am. Very nice. You're a lucky man, I tell you. You're a lucky man to be up there. But we are lucky too because we've got this podcast and we've got art, you know, and art saves us in these difficult times. And later in the podcast, we'll be looking at Grace and Perry's new TV show, Grace and Perry's Art Club, and choosing the pictures we'd like to have on our walls if we could have absolutely anything. First, though, an artist who should be having a big show at the moment at the National Gallery in London, but who's another victim, yet another victim, of the great lockdown. So no show. But that doesn't stop us talking about her, and she is, of course, Artemisia Gentileschi. Bendy, Artemisia, yay or nay? Oh, very much yay. But isn't it extraordinary that this was going to be the first ever exhibition of her in the UK? I mean, talk about ignoring an artist for centuries. What do you think? Well, it's uh, she's been refound, hasn't she? I mean, it's happened to a lot of artists in recent times. Uh, I think her work was scattered about. She just didn't have an identity. So it's not that people deliberately set out to ignore her. Um, she just wasn't a very tangible presence. I, I suspect that's really the main reason, because when you do see her best work in a group, I think it's pretty obvious straight away, really, what uh, an enormous contribution she made. I was just... Uh, I thought I would check, actually, to see if she appeared in my Gombrich, in Gombrich's Story of Art, uh, and she doesn't. Um, not even a, a footnote. And I think it's rather sad that she has been ignored by art history for so long. But then that is the criticism, isn't it, that's always made of the canon in art, that it was something shaped by uh, male connoisseurs, male artists and male art historians for centuries. Um, and when you see the example of Artemisia Gentileschi and you see very quickly in only a few works just how good she was then i think there is uh, much validity to the criticism of the concept of the canon what do you think well of course that's true and men have written the canon and they have said certainly favored other men but that isn't the only thing that's going on that's all i would say on that i mean vermeer was forgotten for three centuries and you know you'd look at a vermeer and you'd think now how is it possible to, to forget Vermeer. Rembrandt even was overlooked for a couple of centuries. These things do happen. Great talents have slipped down the back of the settee. Caravaggio even, you know, wasn't appreciated so much during the age of Raphael. And I think with, with Artemisia is that, I mean, even now, you know, there have been a couple of great discoveries in the past three or four years of wonderful pictures by her. This picture at the National Gallery of, of her self-portrait at St. Catherine, that's only been bought at auction recently. And there's another one that went to America to the Wadsworth Athenaeum of, of a self-portrait of her as a, as a lute player. But all I'm trying to say really is that it's not just that she's been underappreciated, although that is obviously an issue, but also she hasn't been seen properly. She hasn't we haven't had a clear enough idea of her career to be able to really evaluate her. Yes, and I think for someone who fancies himself as a bit of an art sleuth, um, it's one of the reasons I find her a very exciting artist, because there's always a possibility that you, you might just find a stonking work by a great artist still. In fact, um, I could tell you about one I missed only a couple of years ago. 
uh, it was bought by a friend of mine who's a collector. Um, he's a financier by day and an art collector by night. And he was just uh, going through some auction catalogues and found this picture online in Germany. Uh, I thought it looked a bit like an Artemisia. And lo and behold, uh, it was. Um, it's a portrait of, of David and Goliath. Um, and rather nicely, it's even signed Artemisia Gentileschi. So there's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, and hmm. so he made the most extraordinary discovery just on a hunch. Hmm. That sounds unlikely to me indeed. But uh, did you see there's a big show of hers in Rome about, what's about th two or three years ago now? Um, in, in fact, it was in the Quirinale Palace where the Raphael show is at the moment. Uh, I, I saw it. Uh, did, you see, did you see that show? I did. I just chanced upon it. I was in Rome with my wife and daughter on a, on a short break. And, and there it was. And it was one of my favourite exhibitions I've ever been to, partly because I wasn't expecting to see it and partly because, I'm ashamed to say, I wasn't expecting the pictures to be uh, quite so good. Um, I was particularly struck, actually, by her portraits. And Often it seems, and I don't know one, how subjective one can be about this, often it seems that her story and her, her appreciation of her art is overshadowed by the, the tragedy of her life and her rape as a teenager and her torture and trial and all that. And we focus on the religious pictures. Um, but actually for me, the pictures that stood out in that exhibition were the portraits, um, because she just brings such a different uh, gaze. She brings a different perspective to the pictures she paints and the portraits she paints. I particularly liked the portrait of a lady with a fan, uh, mainly because it just had such extraordinary attitude. Uh, and a male artist would never have painted a woman in that manner. The sitter, who unfortunately we don't know, looks like she's just about to waltz onto the dance floor and Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever is playing in the background. There's a huge disco beat. And here's this woman come sashaying out with her fan and her dress and her fingers pointed to say, here I am, don't mess with me. <laughs> yes, um, I suppose that's true. The, the, I actually thought there were some very weak pictures in that Rome show. And, and I suspect that the real reason for that is that they probably weren't by her. And, and it's going back to this idea that we haven't got a very clear sense yet of exactly what she achieved. But for me, the pictures that are, as it were, unarguable Artemisia are these ones where she casts herself in, in this role of, of a sort of protagonist in her own art. But emotionally, she does that in these scenes of um, violence against men. I mean, obviously, one of her most celebrated pictures is the Judith and Holofernes, where she's cutting off the head of, of Holofernes. Well, she isn't, but her, her heroine, as it were, is. And inevitably, the modern world empathises with that. And, and in the kind of Me Too world in which we live, that's a heroic picture, and it's understood in that way. But the the quieter ones, the, the, the National Gallery's new St. Catherine, for example, they are so fabulous, because she presents herself as St. Catherine, so it's a self-portrait. So you've got all that whole personal identity thing tugging you towards it. But there's also just this extra fire to it, this, this identification with a Christian martyr, um, with, with, with a saint from the past. You know, it just gives the picture this extra fire. It, it, it's, it's so interesting, this mental compulsion you feel to engage with her. And there's a, the other new one that was found recently, the, the, I think it's a Saint Cecilia, or they're calling it a woman with a lute, but I'm sure it's, it's a self-portrait of Saint Cecilia, so another martyr. That's got it too. And then that fantastic picture as, as Pietura, as the embodiment of art in the Royal Collection, where she, she is the embodiment of art. And there's just something about this bringing of yourself to art, making yourself the focus of it, that makes her art especially compelling. Mm. 
I know what you mean. And actually, there's something really interesting about that self-portrait with the lute that you just mentioned, which now belongs to the Wadsworth Athenaeum in the United States. I remember a few years ago, it came up for sale in New York. I think it was at Christie's. And the estimate was was quite reasonable, uh, I say, um, quite reasonable. I think it was around about a million dollars. But um, the extraordinary thing is it didn't sell. And this was, I think, four or five years ago. And it, it it's just a really interesting reflection of how belated people have grasped the idea of how important Arti Music Gentileschi was, because even five, ten years ago, people were still slightly shrugging their shoulders at at her um, impact on art history. Mm. Well, it's back to this idea of, of, of old men having written the canon, and I'm, we've got a bit of a cheek talking about this, because basically we're a pair of old blokes talking about the canon <laughs> as well. Uh, and I, I did a poster recently for the Sunday Times, and, and it was it was my history of art. It was one of these sort of free gifts that people were getting during the great lockdown. And boy, did I get it in the neck from various feminist readers who are quite rightly pointing out that I should have had more women artists. And in contemporary art, you can find them. There are, there are, there are great artists, lots of them, who are women artists who can be appreciated by everybody and, and who are being appreciated. In the past, it's just trickier. I mean, there are just fewer of them. And however much we may regret the fact that women were largely written out of the story, uh, the fact is that is what happened. For, you know, and, and there are just not that many women artists whom we can find. You know, we've got Michaelina Wotier, we talked about her on this show. You know, you've got Judith Leister, you've got Rachel Royce in the great Dutch golden age. But you are looking at only a few examples and Artemisia is almost the embodiment of them, isn't she? She is. But all the more reason why we should uh, do what we can to rewrite them back into the story. In fact, I, I, a little plug, something I'm quite proud of, um, is that last year I curated and put on the first ever exhibition of Britain's uh, female 17th century artists. Uh, that was the first time it ever been done in the UK. So people like Mary Beale and uh, Anne Killigrew, who was an extraordinary, uh, fascinating poet painter who died when she was only 24. I love Mary Beale. Mary Beale's really interesting. I mean, she's part of that world that I love, the world of William Dobson. Very intriguing artist. So there's a lot. Of, I think we should look at it. It's a positive. There's a mm. lot of great female art out there waiting still not just to be discovered but also to be re-evaluated so I think we should see that as something that we can look forward to and of course we regret the past we regret the artists that have been forgotten but there are just things on the horizon that look pretty good to me yeah anyway on that positive note that's the end of Artemisia I believe the show has by the way been rethought and restructured and rescheduled so it is coming up at some point in the future it just should have been on now and it isn't which is a big regret however there is a lot of stuff that is on right now particularly on the internet as we're going to find out in the next section of the podcast isolation so bendor i know you've been sitting in your living room wondering what to do and like me you've been saved by art because you have to admit there's an awful lot of art now on the internet lots of things one can find lots of interesting things to watch from the safety and comfort of your own living room so what have you been looking at i have been looking at something that absolutely fascinates me in the whole art game and that is conservation the Metropolitan Museum in New York has a little channel on YouTube which is dedicated to the topic of conservation. It's called Conserving Art at the Met. And there's a lot of lovely videos to see. There's, there's how they're fixing a tear in a Michelangelo drawing. Um, and extraordinarily, there's how they repaired a full-size marble statue by Tullio Lombardo, which was made in 1490 of Adam, uh, which smashed to the ground about eight or nine years ago. And they had to painstakingly glue it all back together. 
But the most interesting one is a series of videos about the cleaning of a painting by Charles Lebrun, a huge monumental painting of the, the art collector Eberhard Jabach and his family, um, which the Met bought a few years ago. And it was absolutely filthy and it needed relining. It needed all sorts of TLC done to it. But the most wonderful bits of the film are when the conservators apply their swabs and their magic solutions. And with a few gentle strokes, they reveal something that hasn't been seen for three or 400 years, the artist's original colors and brushstrokes and technique. And it's, it's just breathtaking to see it. It's right up your street, isn't it? Because of the TV program that you do, Britain's Lost Masterpieces, you're always dabbling in restoration, aren't you? It's your world, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I flatter myself sometimes that people might tune in to see that film because uh, I, I might discover the odd picture. But actually what they really want to see is our restorer, Simon Gillespie, uh, and the, the extraordinary before and after transformation that he can, he can wield with a tiny little swab. Uh, and I think it's the reason people like it so much is that the smallest little change to a painting, removing a bit of dirt or overpaint, can make the biggest impact to its meaning. So in the past, we have uh, cleaned off little bits of overpaint and then suddenly there's a whole signature underneath. Uh, we, we had some pictures by Peter Bruegel the Younger um, and someone had, had not only overpainted half the animals in the picture, but also the signature. And it was just Simon surgically removing all these layers which, which transformed the painting and their story. It's a very interesting moment in restoration because, I mean, I remember only, what, five years ago, let's say, ten years ago for sure, people didn't like to talk about restoration. I remember filming a Giorgione film once, and we went to Venice, and they were restoring the Castel Franco Madonna, which is one of his earliest masterpieces, and I remember they wouldn't let us film it because, you know, the first stage of restoration could look very brutal. You've taken off all the old paint and there's these massive great gaps left in the canvas and it can be frightening. And that was the stage this picture was at. And the woman, I remember, she was a, a very sort of bellicose director of the, of the academia in Venice, just would not let us anywhere near it. And that happened in, to various degrees and quite a lot of art at that time. And yet recently, the opposites happened. They've made a big deal of these restorations. The, the Ghent altarpiece, which was the great Van Eyck, was being restored in Ghent, you know, that that became a public event. They, were, they built this giant glass studio and we all poured in looking through the glass, watching every move. They did the same with Rembrandt's Night Watch. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's like, have you seen that program on the telly that's very popular now called The Repair Shop? Uh, I've seen one or two, yeah. In fact, uh, I think Simon's been on it. Has he, yeah, well, they, somebody brings some stuff in and people restore it. So there's a lovely story to be told usually about the object, but also people are just interested in the way things come back to life. And I think museums have discovered this. And I loved that Met site that you talked about there, which have, you'd have all the details on the Sunday Times web pages afterwards. And you can turn to that and look at them. And I saw a film about them restoring a carpet and it was just brilliant. It was this Persian carpet from the 16th century. So interesting. So the processes are really intriguing and, and all that nervousness that people used to have about revealing what restoration involves proved to be unnecessary. It's actually really fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm so glad um, museums have got over this because you're right, they used to be terribly neurotic about it. And I don't know what they were afraid of. Perhaps, perhaps people didn't understand that uh, paintings that have been around for four or 500 years have been bashed about a bit, but the public actually is quite accepting of that. So there's no reason to be quite so concerned about it. No, there isn't. Um, anyway, I've been looking at something else. I've been watching the telly, actually, and uh, watching Grayson Perry's Art Club. 
which is on on channel four it's on mondays now um i've seen a few of these art clubs now I mean, various people have started them uh, it's an obvious thing to do in a way you know we're, there's a lot of homeschooling going on in the world at the moment and art is one of those things that are relatively fun to do so grayson perry's show basically he comes in it's filmed in his studio at home um, and people have been asked to send in stuff the theme this this week was portraits so people sent in their portraits and Grayson did various things to do with portraiture. So he he got in a couple of people who are told of famous comedians, although I've never heard of them. There's somebody called Joe Lysette who did, did a picture of the um, of, of Chris Whitty, you know, the, the man who's on every night on the telly telling us to watch our health. And some another comedian called Keith Lemon, I think I have heard of, and he did a portrait of a pop star or something. So comedians are on our every art programme now, aren't they? So it wasn't a surprise mm -hmm. to see them on this one. But it was... It was a charming program, and, and I thought the thing I almost liked most about it was, you know, when you see Grayson Perry out and about in his Claire outfit and he's wearing his full-on drag, he's one kind of person. But in this program, he's another kind of person. He's just at home. He, he looks like he could do with a haircut. He certainly could do with a good combing of his hair. And he's with his wife, Philippa, who's also incredibly interesting. She's a, a, a well-known um, psychologist, you know, and she's written books and, and, and she's, she's a big presence herself. Um, but their relationship is lovely. You know, they're so fond of each other and he does a picture of her and she talks to him so nicely. It was just a very intimate and lovely portrayal. And it sort of ha didn't have some of that archness that you get in, in so many of these art programs. So that, that part of it I liked. I don't know if you saw it, if you like that. I did. Actually, I could have watched uh, Grayson and Philippa for the whole hour. I, I didn't particularly care for the um, the celebs coming in with their not particularly good pictures. Um, I, I could have watched them. I thought they were lovely to watch. I have one issue, though, right? I mean, I, I do think it's a marvellous event. I love Grayson and I, and I thought the, the programme was fun. But at the end, he says he says something that, that to be honest, sent a bit of a shiver through me, right? He said, mm -hmm. I've had all these people on, I've chosen all these artworks, they're all going to go into this exhibition. And what have I learned from making this programme, he said. He said, my, the thing I'm taking away is that it's not important to get a likeness from a portrait. Now, now that hurt me, actually, mm -hmm. because I think it is important to get a likeness from a portrait, at least on the level that I'm interested in art. Now, of course, if you're talking about art as a kind of nursery experience where people can do whatever they want and it's just fun and throw around the paints, fine. But if you're talking about something more than that, if you're talking about the kind of art that in the end societies are judged by, the stuff that we look back from 500 years ago and say that's important because, you know, if you're looking at that, then surely ground zero in portraiture is to get a likeness. And it's part of this, this thing we have at the moment where, where there's a kind of war against expertise going on, a, a war against pr proper sort of professionalism and knowledge. And I'm not saying that Grayson does that deliberately, but I think there's an element of it. And, you know, you, you, could, you could trace a line from this attitude that says, oh, you know, anybody can do a portrait. You don't need to get a likeness. You could trace a line from that to 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 President Trump appearing on the telly and saying we should all inject ourselves with disinfectant because I know a lot about science. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a there's a there's a thing going on where we I think we're, we we need to watch it. We need to we need to be careful about how much we value people's genuine knowledge as opposed to just their enthusiasm, etc. Now that that costs me as the the pantomime baddie in this argument, but I do believe that. Well, I have to say I agree with you. Uh, we're rapidly turning into the who are those two old muppets? Were well, they called Waldorf and Statler? 
all the Mbindi. <laughs> We're like them, aren't we? Um, I mean, I did enjoy the show, uh, but I just, I just kept wanting to have a little, um, a little moment of grace and saying, this is actually how you do it. Here's some technique tips. Um, you know, here's how you draw a face. But I wasn't quite getting that. And at this point, perhaps I should reveal myself as a, a fan on the BBC iPlayer. You can tune into Bob Ross's Joy of Painting classes. Have you seen any of those? I haven't. Oh, no, I've, I've been told I must. They're really, they're really good. They're short and he's a great communicator. Of course, these were made in the 1970s and he's there in this huge frizzy haircut. And there's lots of sort of American supermarket music in the background. Um, but they're mesmerizing. And you do actually learn quite a lot as well as being sort of um, uplifted spiritually inside. Um, so you don't get all the gags and celebs that you do with Grace and Perry's show, but you do actually learn something about how to paint a painting. Well, that's valuable, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, uh, anyway, what we're all agreed on is that there's plenty to watch in isolation. Uh, but we don't have to just do that because we can also get to choose what we want in our walls in the next section of the podcast. On the wall. So here we are back again, Bendor, in the museum without walls where we can have anything we want hanging in front of us right now because that's the magic of the podcast so what have you chosen for us this week i'm afraid i'm getting a little bit punch drunk on the concept of having our our own private museums i need a bigger and bigger hit it's a bit like drinking coffee you need more and more to get the same buzz don't you so uh, this week i've gone for uh, tintoretto's crucifixion um which is 12 meters long um it's from the scuola grande de san rocco in venice uh, so we're going to have to build an extension for my museum in order to fit this one in. Um, one of the reasons I've chosen it is that there's a little bit of a theme emerging in my picks. Um, is that San Rocco was uh, invoked against the plague in the 16th century. So I think that would be quite helpful to have one of those paintings. But this is unquestionably for me Tintoretto's masterpiece. Um, it's uh, very quickly painted. His nickname was uh, Il Furioso. And the painting is a swirling mass of people and action uh, and there in the middle is is christ on the cross crucified and unlike most crucifixion pictures um where christ is shown sort of resigned to his fate um tintoretto's christ looks really quite annoyed to be out there nailed to a cross and in amongst all the action um in order to stop the composition being overwhelmed by so many people and so many little storylines unfolding before us uh, tintoretto introduces a number of really quite eye-catching straight lines it's very geometric there's there's someone pulling a huge rope to pull the crosses up and then there's a ladder on the floor and and these are all needed in order to make a, a 12 meter long painting actually have some sense of coherence and to guide your eye into it so for me it's one of the paintings that you can stare at for hours and hours and hours uh, if if the renaissance ever had a drive-in cinema it was this picture so i'm having it in my museum I'm going to bring out the popcorn and I'm going to sit down in front of it for a good few hours at a time. See, I've, I've, I can see another theme emerging here, right? This last week, you talked about Bellini's beautiful Pesaro triptych, right, which is in the Frari church. If you walk out of the Frari church for about 100 feet or so, you go into the Scuola San Rocco, up the stairs, and there's the Tintoretto. You have moved 100 feet in the last two of these big choices. Basically, you want to stay in Venice all your life, but you want to go between the Frari and the Scuola San Rocco, and that seems to be about it, Bendy. 
Well, I've got a good deal from the, the art transporters. They're in Venice, so I thought while they're there, they could just load everything up for me and bring it home. It is interesting that you, meant, you, you, you mentioned the cinematic presence of the Tintoretto. Now, see, this is the really interesting thing about it for me. If you remember where it hangs, it hangs in this room at the end of the top floor of the Scuola San Rocca. So you go through this huge assembly room with all the Tintorettos on the roof, and then you turn left into this smaller sort of chapel space, which is long and thin. The painting isn't at the thin end of it, it's at the long end of it. So you're confronted by this rather short space. I mean, between you and the picture is a short space. So it is like a giant cinema screen. And, and, and he's obviously designed it to work that way because you're almost like looking up at it, pressed up against it as if you're in sort of row three of the Odeon. And it does develop sideways that way. So you've got the giant Christ in the middle with this rather strange, slightly spooky pose where he's got his arms stretched out in quite a sort of muscular fashion. And then all this stuff happening on either side. So it's a fantastic piece of cinematic theatre. Such a compelling image, immediately dramatic, isn't it? I love it. I love that room. And there in the in the ceiling above it is the painting which transformed Tintoretto's life, actually, because, you know, there's a famous story about how he, he got the gig to paint all those pictures in the Scuola Grande. Um, there was a competition as to who could paint uh, the starter image, if you like, of San Rocco. And most artists just did a little sketch or a study and sent that in. Uh, Tintoretto didn't do things like that. He painted the finished picture himself. And he then broke into the Scuola Grande at night and installed it in the ceiling. And so they had to give him the job. And thereafter, he painted every picture in the building and changed his life. It's a wonderful experience going to that place. I certainly recommend it. Uh, but I'm going to continue with the isolation theme, but slightly differently, because I've gone for a Picasso. A Picasso painted in Paris in 1943, so during the German occupation. Now, this German occupation, I don't think, was anything like as severe as our lockdown. In fact, I know it wasn't. But there were restrictions, and Picasso did stay in Paris. A lot of French artists left. Matisse, for instance, went to Nice, stayed in the south of France. But Picasso, because he was such an arrogant so-and-so, he stayed in Paris, he looked the Germans in the eyes, and he carried on working in these very difficult conditions. There were shortages of paint, there were shortages of food, there were shortages of fire, there were shortages of everything, but he stayed and he, and he sort of toughed it out. And I love that about him. And this particular image I've chosen, it's called a Still Life with a Skull, Sea Urchins and a Lamp. And it's a very bare image. It's just a table and these sort of black outlined objects on it done with a spiky cubist style. So there's this particularly sort of dramatic wobbly skull. There's the lamp, which is throwing a rather weak gray light on everything as if there isn't much paraffin around and it just feels bleak. And then there is this plate, a wobbly sort of cubisty plate with three sea urchins on it, or perhaps it's the same sea urchin with bits taken out of it. Now, sea urchin, have you ever, have you ever eaten sea urchin, Bendor? No, I haven't. Should I? Uh, uh, well, listen to this, right? I have eaten them, and they are, um, they're a delicacy now. You know, they're quite expensive. You have to go to the south of France to get them, or Japan, where they love them. But during the war, I mean, I imagine they were incredibly hard to get in Paris, but he's obviously found one somewhere or other. Uh, but he's only... It's, it's like when you see them on the plate, there's at least three precious bits. And the, the inside of a sea urchin, there's enough food to, to, to feed a, you know, a, a, a blue tit or something. You, you'd have trouble filling a tiny teaspoon with the bit of sea urchin that you could eat. 
but on this plate he's sort of proudly laid them out and and this delicacy has been turned into a symbol of poverty into into a symbol of sparseness and because it's spiky the sea urchin it's got something of a crown of thorns about it anyway my, my big point is that during this time in, of lockdown in Paris, Picasso produced, I think, some of his best still lives. And there are still lives that are imbued with the character of the lockdown. They're sparse, they're grey, they're harsh. They are pictures that seem to me to capture the spirit of the moment. And that moment speaks to our moment. That's what I love about it. Good. I, I must say, it's not a picture that would cheer me up very much. Um, so it's not something I would have in my wall. It's definitely in the private wildy wing. Well, that's so harsh of you. Um, but anyway, I will tell you what, I will look at it a lot in my private wildy wing, my little private wildy wing, while you build your gigantic extension for the Tintoretto. I'll be skulking around the back looking at my Picasso. But I'm going to enjoy doing that over the next week or so. So uh, until we meet again, Bendy, I'm off to look at the Picasso. Looking forward to the next show. See you soon. Waldy and Bendy.